before Revelation, before Jude, after Hebrews. Right after Hebrews. First and second Peter. So let's go to Second Peter chapter three. We've been going through the epistle, the letter, second letter that Peter writes. And last week we looked at warnings that he was giving. And the warnings were for false prophets and false teachers. False prophet would be somebody who's prophesying something, telling something that, you know, doesn't happen, doesn't come to pass. False teachers are people who are taking truth and twisting it. And so last week we had an opportunity to talk about the prosperity gospel. Um, We said that was no good. We talked about prosperity teachers. We said that they're no good. Oftentimes money is their motive and it's your money into their bank accounts. Is, is what that what happens a lot there. Um, and so, if you weren't here, go ahead and get the, get the tape, as they say. We don't have tapes. Uh, you can go online, cclivingwater.net, and all the messages are posted there. Wednesday nights seem to be a little slower than Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are like quick. Wednesday nights, uh, they seem to be about a, there's a two to three week lag. So, hopefully, uh, last week's is up there, and you can take a listen. Paul, uh, Peter is going to conclude his second letter uh, here. And we're kind of continuing on on that same vein of warnings. So, 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of your word, even as this chapter uh, instructs us. I pray, Father, that we would continue to look to you for all things, and that we would participate with you in what you're doing in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would um, just bask in that wonderful grace that you offer and extend to each of us, and that, Lord, that would be our strength, as Paul encouraged Timothy, the grace of God be our strength. And so bless your word, bless this time, Father, as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, Beloved I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by the way of by way of reminder. So here, Pete, uh, Paul, who am I reading? Peter is again reminding these Christians, these believers, um, of what's important. And here he's saying that he's going to stir up their pure minds by way of reminder. In Let's see, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Let me read that one to you. He did that earlier where he said, To them it was revealed that uh, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things which angels... That is not the verse, is it? 2 Peter... Oh, I'm in 1 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 12. Let me read that to you. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. And so again, here, as he's closing out this letter, he's letting them know, I'm reminding you again, I'm coming back at you again, I'm letting you know again that there are some some things that you need to be reminded of. And so, notice in that first verse, um... Stir up your pure minds. Pure minds means uncontaminated, unmixed by the seductive influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so a pure mind is a 
a mind that isn't clouded, confused, overwhelmed, uh, burdened, um, over-encumbered, all of these things that, man, the world, the flesh, and the, and the devil wants to bring us into. And, and the way I think, one of the best ways I found that we can have this pure mind, unencumbered mind, worry-free mind, is through obedience to what we know. It's very difficult when there are certain things that you don't know and you're committing those sins that you know better than to not have an encumbered mind. You're gonna, it's going to just overwhelm you. Because as a child of God, the Lord has set you free from the bondage and the power of sin. And so when you willfully go into uh, sin... Doesn't mean you won't struggle. Doesn't mean that you won't um, have things that the enemy's tripping you up with, you know, constantly. But when you are knowingly living in sin, going, if you're sinning against your your knowledge. You, you know better. You 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 know um, you shouldn't be living like that. And so, the pure mind that the Lord wants to give you, the pure mind that the Lord wants you to have, is man. Talk about mental hygiene. I think it's one of our culture's biggest struggles. Get unhealthy minds and just confusion and just everything that the enemy wants to throw. And it's such a burden and a weight because it, it, it's bondage. Last week we talked about, you know, knowing the truth and, and the truth will set you free, right? And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And I remember Jeffrey pointed out the context of that is obedience to the word. Because the verse before that verse, it, it says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, well what's the verse before that? It talks about obedience to the word. And so when we obey the word, there's this freedom that the Lord wants to give us. And part of it is definitely a mental hygiene, a, a health in our thought process. And so Peter here, amongst all the things that he's saying, he's talking about he, he wants to remind them, in both of which I stir up, notice your pure minds by way of reminder. In Titus chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. When you have a pure mind, you look at things for what they are at face value. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across people who, who do innuendos. You know, dirty jokes or um, just they, they have a dirty mind, if you will. And, and a lot of what they say, like, <laughs> guys are notorious for this. Just it's coarse jesting and it's just it's joking that it's just it's off putting to me. And so a lot of times I can be honest with you, man, it just flies over my head. And I'm like, yeah, were you trying to be funny? I, I get it. You know, and then, and then they're offended that I didn't get And then I, now I've offended them because, you know, they were trying to be funny and that's not funny to me. I don't think sin is funny. I don't think playing with sin is funny. I don't think tiptoeing around sin. No, from a non-believer, I have a different approach. I, I don't try not to get easily offended from, from sinners, from non-Christians. But when you're naming the name of Christ and just filth and junk is coming out of your mouth, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind 
and conscience, the Bible declares, are defiled. Verse 2, he goes on to say that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. What are we talking about? The Old Testament. Notice, and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. He's putting the New Testament on the same part that he's putting what? The Old Testament. It's God's word. They're one and the same. Very important for people who study the Bible and go deeper into the Bible and the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Not just the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. The 39 books, right? In the Old Testament, the 27 books. In the New Testament, the 66 books that make up your Holy Bible. Verse 3, he says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So he just got finished talking about false teachers, false prophets. Now he's going to talk, he's going to go a step further. One thing to be a false teacher and a false prophet, now he's going to talk about scoffers. So you have seeker, skeptic, scoffer. As it relates to non-Christians. If you're talking to a Christian, if you're, um, if you're in the presence of a Christian, if you're hanging out with Christians, that's cool. That's called fellowship, koinonia. And that's what you want. Iron sharpening iron. You guys can talk about the Lord, about spiritual things, about the Bible. But you have to be around non-Christians too. Do not isolate yourself from non-Christians. Why are you in the world? You're in the world to be salt and light. To be able to get around people who don't know Jesus. So you can love them and build a relationship with them and not judge them. Their sin is judging them. But so that you can develop a relationship long enough to be able to proclaim the truth. So when you are with non-believers, discern whether they are a seeker, skeptic, or scoffer. A seeker. Whoo, man, seekers are like, oh, man, seekers are like fruit falling off of the tree. You're like, oh, they're asking all the right questions. How do you know they're asking all the right questions? Because you know all the answers. You're like, take it, Jesus. This is cool. They're asking me questions that I know the answers to. They're seeking. They're seeking the path of the Lord. They're seeking. They might be hurting. They might have just lost a loved one. Somebody that they know and love is sick. And so, oh, they're like wondering, they're questioning, they're seeking. Give to every man an answer, the hope that lies within you with gentleness and meekness. We just learned in 1 Peter, right? When they're asking questions, give them answers. Answers from the Word of God. That's a seeker. A skeptic. A skeptic can be, uh, on, a, on a low level of a skeptic, a skeptic can be a seeker. But... On a higher level, a skeptic can be pretty tough. But nonetheless, they're still asking questions. They're just skeptical. They're wondering. Hey, wait, 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 wait. Do you mean to tell me that you don't believe in evolution? Oh my gosh, you're going to have to, oh man, you believe in fairy tales? Now you got an opportunity to be able to shed light and, and, and push them to origins. What is the theory of evolution? It's the theory of origins. Where did we come from? A big bang. Huh. What caused the big bang? Oh, I don't know. It just happened. Nothing just happens. You can't re remedy that in a, in a Petri dish, right? You, you can't go to the science lab and replicate that. And so that's a skeptic. They're a little skeptical, but it's okay. 
answer the questions that they have. As they ask questions as well, you get to answer those questions. They're skeptical. All of us should be skeptical. We shouldn't at face value just accept everything. We should, wait, wait, hold up. I don't read right. I don't sound good. Huh. And so, are they a seeker? Yay. Answer their questions. Are they skeptic? That's okay. It might be a little harder. Make sure you're praying, right, for both. But it might be a little tougher, but it's going to force you to go to the Word, force you to get some answers. Are they a scoffer? If they're a scoffer, talk to the hand. If they're a scoffer, that's a whole different level. Look at what the Bible says about scoffers. Scoffers, or articles that I wrote. Discern between a seeker, skeptic, and a scoffer. The word translated scoffer in English can mean one who mocks, ridicules, or scorns the belief of another. In Hebrew, the word translated scoffer or mocker can also mean ambassador. So a scoffer is one who not only disagrees with an idea, but he also considers himself an ambassador for the opposing idea. He cannot rest until he has demonstrated the foolishness of any idea not his own. A scoffer voices his disagreement, ridicules all who stand against him, and actively recruits others to join his side. In the Bible, scoffers are those who choose to disbelieve God and his word. They say in their hearts, like Psalm 14, 1 says, there is no God, and make it their ambition to ridicule those who follow God. The Bible has a lot to say about scoffers. Proverbs 19.21, Proverbs 29.8, Acts 13.41. Proverbs 3.34 says that God scoffs at the scoffers, Yes, he give, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. Let me read you a few of these verses. Proverbs 19.29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and beatings for the backs of fools. Proverbs 29.8, scoffers set a city aflame, but wise men turn away wrath. Acts 13.41 Behold you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Psalm 1, verse 1, notice the, the progression. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He walks, then he stands, and before you know it, he's sitting. Blessed is the man who doesn't hang out with that. Scoffers have always been and will always be present in the world. But there is coming a promised day when at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. On that day, there will no longer be any scoffers. They will at last accept the truth, and their scoffing will be forever silent. And so Peter is warning in chapter 2 of 2 Peter that there's false teachers and false prophets. Now in this chapter, he's warning, be careful. There's scoffers out there. And a scoffer is someone who's not only going to ridicule you and your belief, but try to win you over to their belief. Okay? Let's go on because I think the rest of the chapter sheds a lot of light on it. Knowing this first that scoffers, verse 3 says, will come in the last days walking according to notice their own lusts, their own desires, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. By the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as, as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so you have this verse that many have taken out of context. So there is no, there's no truth outside of a context. And when we pluck stuff out of the Bible, and we begin to make pretexts out of that, that's not how we're supposed to study the Word of God. It needs to be within its context. And some people have taken this verse that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And they've said, well, yeah, see, that, that's kind of, that goes along with the theory of evolution because, you know, it took a lot of time, a lot of years, right? So those days of creation, I don't know why people try to reconcile creation with evolution. They're called um, theistic, theistic evolution. Yeah, it, it doesn't jive. It doesn't go. And so what they'll do is they'll take Genesis chapter 1 and the seven days of creation and they'll say, look, right there. One day is a thousand years. So those were not literal 24-hour days. Those were like, what, that could a thousand-year span could have been there. Well, for the theory of evolution to work, you need millions and millions of years according to the theory. And so that really doesn't even jive. But and then well-meaning Christians would also take the same verse with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, you go back to Genesis and, and those that six and one pattern, six days of creation, one day of rest, right? Six days and then the Sabbath, one day of rest. And that's how it is now because Adam and Eve were around about 4,000 BC. We're in the year 2000 here. It's been about 6,000 years if we do the math. The millennium's right around the corner. Rapture's going to happen tomorrow. And people set dates and they look at that. But the context of this is not saying that. And so you might believe that. You might teach it. I've taught that before and I look at it and I'm like, that's not what this is saying. So I have to retract my teaching. I have to say, shame on me for teaching that. I do believe in a young earth theory. But there's other reasons that I can point to. I shouldn't use this verse. Because that's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is teaching, if you want to look at the context, you go back to verse 4. And what do these scoffers say? Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What is Peter trying to say with this verse, verse 8? But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Notice verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The context of the verse, one day is a thousand, a thousand is one day, is simply, from God's perspective in eternity, it looks like it's taken a long time for Him to come back, but He's not willing that any should perish. His heart is that more people would come to saving knowledge and go to heaven 
and be with him in eternity. And so what seems long for you, picture if you told a, a toddler, hey, I got a promise for you. I got a promise for you, but it's not going to happen for 10 minutes. Oh my God. That kid's like, 10 minutes? How long is that? Oh my gosh, I got to wait for 10 minutes. Okay. For you, 10 minutes would be like a blip on the screen. 10 minutes? You're giving me a check for how much? In 10 minutes? We're going to go get an ice cream? In 10 minutes? I'm down. Woo! 10 minutes. Let me get the shoes on. By the time I get them on, you'll be ready to go. I'll be waiting for you in the car. 10 minutes is nothing. Right? From your perspective, in, in contrast to a toddler, 10 minutes for, for them might be a very, very long, long time to wait for an ice cream. Right? But for us who are adults, not, not that big of a deal. Now, what if I told you, hey, in a year, I'm going to give you a surprise. You'd be like, in a year? In a year? Who's got a year to wait? I don't even know if I'm going to be here next year. I barely made it through last year. How are you going to make me wait a year for the promise you want to give me? That would be a long time for us. And so in God's economy, would a year be a long time? No, because one day is as a thousand years for God. And a thousand years is a day. From the per perspective of eternity, that's the context of what he's saying. He talked about the world being in the water. And out of the water. And then he talked about the judgment that's coming through fire. So no longer is the world going to be judged with water. Right? He, he talked about all that to give it a perspective that God holds to his promises. Just because they seem long for us, they're not long for God. From his perspective. That's the context of that verse. Let's end it. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with, great, with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also to the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And so what he uses is the coming of the Lord, and it's a blessed event. Turn with me to Second, First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, and we'll end there on this idea of the thief in the night, because Paul does mention that in First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. <clears throat> we'll close here. And then I'll make a couple points. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief? You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And so this idea of a thief in the night, the, you know, the idea is the, the person in the home, the resident, um, you know, they're not expecting a thief in the night, right? They're sleeping, they're not watching. We are to be watching for the coming of the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says even hastening, ushering it in, helping it along. How? Romans chapter 10 says that there's a number of, of Gentiles, that the fullness of the Gentiles, once that comes, that we will see the rapture of the church. Well, how about if we're sharing with people? When you discern between a seeker and a skeptic and a scoffer, and you're sharing with that seeker and that skeptic, and you notice there's an opportunity for you to present the gospel. And you can tell that person is ready to receive the Lord. Then say, how would you like to receive the Lord? Pray with them. Pray with them. Invite them. What do they need to do? What, what have I messed up? You can't. It's not your work. It's God's. He's just letting you in on it. And all you have to do is say, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And what if it's us that God is waiting for to open our stinking mouth with that last person that's going to be the fullness of the Gentile and we're hastening the coming of the Lord. Well, right now we're delaying it. Well, I don't know. What am I asking? Well, I don't know. I don't really pray. I don't know why I do that. It's not you. It's God. And God is just letting you in on what he wants to do. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to middle to end. But God wants to use you and me to be able to open our mouths and share the gospel with people that need to hear it. Did you know that there's a God in heaven that loves you? Did you know that there's a God in heaven that loves you and he has a plan for you? He wants to walk and talk with you. And so when people are hurting, when people have questions, when people are asking, present the gospel. When the opportunity presents itself, present the opportunity. The opportunity is the gospel. And so, the thief in the night and all that idea, that shouldn't shock us. We should be looking for the coming of our Lord. That is our expected future. That is our hope. I've been living hopeless, man. I've been living down. You're not looking for the coming then. Because Jesus is the blessed hope, according to Titus 2.13. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the Christian. No matter how many bills I have, no matter how my health is, no matter how my mental hygiene is or is not, no matter what is bad in my life, the blessed hope is the reality that I have an expected future. 
And that should lift every head, no matter how bad it is. That's why the gospel is for everyone, everywhere, over all the world. Not just America, that prosperity gospel that says you got to be healthy and wealthy and wise and never sick and never hurting and never down or else you're in sin and it's your fault. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a doctrine from Satan. We go through it. We go through difficulties. It's not a perfect life on this side of eternity. The blessed hope, if we find ourselves without hope, it's because we're not looking for Jesus' soon return. We want him to come back. But his long-suffering means he's not willing that any should perish. And if he's not coming back, it means that there's more people that he wants in the kingdom. Okay, So that's kind of the chapter. That's how Peter wraps it up.